Great. Well, good morning. Uh, Today we're going to be in a section of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Like Josh said, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 976 in the Pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have some in the back, and there's no shame in going to grab those. We're going to be working pretty systematically through this passage, so it'll be very helpful for you if you have a Bible open. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we do have some gold-colored ones. This is brown, but there are ones that are gold, and we have ones that are black, like that, uh, which you are free to take with you. In fact, we encourage it. Uh, We'd love for you to have a Bible. As you guys turn there, I should probably turn there as well. So let's go to God's Word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear from you this morning in your word. Enable our minds to understand the things you say and strengthen us by your spirit to obey your will. Father, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as Josh already mentioned, yesterday my sister-in-law, Allie, got married to Andrew Molesky. She's now officially a Molesky. The time has come. It's great. It was fun to be able to celebrate that as a church. I think that's the first marriage between two our wedding between two members of Livingstone. So that's a big thing for us as a church, right? And I love Allie and Andrew, and I think one of the great things about them as a couple is how similar they are in some ways, but how massively different they are from each other uh, in other ways, right? And we know both of them, so we, we, we probably know the ways that they are different. And that's, that's true in a lot of marriages, that we take into it similarities, we take into it differences, and that's true of me and Lexi, One of the ways that we're very different is that she's very connected to her past. If you spend any time with Lexi's family, uh, if you ever visit with them, you'll probably spend hours watching home videos. Lexi loves flipping through those hours and remembering and reliving all of these moments in her life, whether it's a birthday party that her mom had for her or a holiday where she's celebrating with family or a pool party in the back or even just like the everyday pieces of life. Lexi remembers things, and she talks about those things with her family all the time. They're constantly remembering together. It's beautiful. But I'm, I'm not that way. I'm super different. 
I, I, I every once in a while remember something from my childhood, and I have boxes in the basement with all these photos and these photo albums and binders, but I never look at them. I, I never really talk with my family a whole lot about memories. We're always so busy just doing things that we don't spend a whole lot of time to slow down and remember. Lexi's life is informed by her own story. How she views herself now and how she lives is informed by who she was when she was a kid, the friends that she had. And I wish that was true about me. I, I could argue that my way of life, focusing on the present, focusing on the future, is more practical than Lexi's. Uh, but really, the way that she lives is, is valuable. And I need to learn the value in remembering. The passage we're in this morning in Ephesians 2 is one of the many great calls in Scripture to remember. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, God says, remember, remember what I have done. One of my favorites is in Deuteronomy 6. Israel is receiving these instructions right after the exodus out of Egypt. And it's before they uh, go into the land that God had promised to their father, Abraham. And Moses tells the people of God this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And later on in this chapter, there's these instructions to parents that when their children came to them and said, Daddy, what's the meaning behind the law that fathers and mothers are supposed to teach their children that God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, that he had brought them out of the house of slavery, and that he had given them the law that they would be able to live in obedience? So many of Israel's problems in the Old Testament stem directly from them forgetting what had been done for them. They forgot God's great deliverance. They forgot who their Lord was. And they strayed away from the covenants that God had entered into uh, with them. And the necessity of that sort of remembrance is is just as true for us today under the new covenant as as it was for them under the old. We need to remember what God has done for us. We need to remember the salvation that he has worked for us in Christ. And we need to live now in light of what he has already done, what he has already done accomplished. In that way, uh, the Christian life should be lived more like Lexi. It should be lived less like me, always informed by what has been done. So our main idea uh, this morning from Ephesians 2 is this. If you're taking notes, I'll repeat it a couple times for you. Since God has worked for us such a great salvation in Christ, we must continually remember the story of that salvation. Since God has worked for us such a great salvation in Christ, we must continually remember the story of that salvation. And we'll look specifically at three things that we must remember as parts of this story. We must remember who we were in sin. We must remember what God has done to save us from sin. And we must remember God's purposes in saving us. We must remember why He has worked this salvation for us. So let's look at this first point from verses 1 through 3. We must remember who we were in sin. And I want you to bear with me. I want you to bear with me through the darkness of this first point. We're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about sin. 
But I think to see the brightness of the light of the gospel, we need to understand the darkness and the depth of our sin. So we need to spend time there. Paul spends time there. We need to go there. That's where we'll be in this first point. So look with me to verse 1. If you look there, you'll see right away that Paul is inviting the Ephesian church to remember something from their past. It says, and you were. You were this way. He wants them to remember three things particularly about who they were. He wants them to remember that they were dead in sin. It goes on in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Now, of course, when he says they were dead, he doesn't mean that they were physically dead, right? They weren't like Lazarus. And then all of a sudden, when they heard the gospel, they came out of this grave physically and they became physically alive. What he's talking about for, for the Ephesians is that before they heard the gospel and that they, before they believed that they were dead, they were dead spiritually. They had corrupt natures. They had a very real death before God. And this spiritual death leaves mankind, apart from God, unable to do anything that would please God. The writer from Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to, to please God. So you can be spiritually dead, and physically alive, and you can still help old ladies across the street. You can still be a really great heart surgeon. You can be one of the nicest people that people have ever met. You can give to charity. You can come to church. You can do all of those things being physically alive, yet being spiritually dead. And that spiritual death only ever works greater and greater corruption in the human heart. If you ever wonder why the world is the way it is, why you see corruption, why you see pain and death caused by humans on this planet. It's because of that spiritual death within mankind. The problem is in here. And how often do we, uh, how often do we think that we are good people? How often do we compare ourselves with the person next to us? I'm better than them. I'm good. That's not who we are apart from God. In a way, it's kind of like zombies. I'm not a big zombie movie fan. I know they were really in like, I don't know, four years ago. I don't know if they're still as popular as they were back then. Zombie movies and zombie books. They were, you know, every, everybody was writing about zombies. But zombies are, it's this living death, right? They're kind of dead, but they're kind of alive. And the nice thing about zombies is when, when you see them, you can recognize they're a zombie, right? For some reason, it's the way that they walk. I don't know why that's so typical of zombies, uh, but with a spiritually dead person, you can look at them on the outside and you don't see anything different initially, but they can still be spiritually dead on the inside. But like a, a zombie, it inhabits uh, the thing that it, that it takes hold of. It, it, it deforms you from the inside. It takes a person that was made in the image of God, someone that was made with dignity in it, and it, it morphs us into something other than that. It changes us. It takes us over. And it's this death that's described in Ephesians. Uh, he describes it to them, and it's in their past, and it's an accurate description of all of us too. It's not just about them. Apart from God, we're dead. Apart from God, you're dead. You're dead in your sin and in your trespasses. And we need to remember that. We have to. If you want to understand the gospel, you have to know that you were dead in your sins apart from God. But second, he wants them to know that they were not only dead, but they were slaves. 
Specifically, they were, they were enslaved to three masters that he identifies in this passage. The world, the devil, and their own sinful nature. So look at verse 2. He reminds the Ephesians that they followed the course of this world. And this is following the world in its sin. Following the world in its rebellion against God. And apart from God, man gives in to the spirit of the age. Living apart from God. And they were enslaved to that. But they were not only enslaved to that. They were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air who they followed. And this is a reference to the devil and his work in the world. It's really unpopular to talk about sin these days, but it's really unpopular to believe in a real devil. It's unpopular to believe that he is presently at work in this world, but that's what we believe. That's what Ephesians is teaching us, that they follow the prince of the power of the air. And this reference is particularly true for the Ephesians in that the Ephesian people uh, were famous for having a temple to the goddess Artemis. You can read about uh, that in, in Acts 18 through 20 as the gospel comes to Ephesus and all of the way that the city revolts and riots as the gospel comes and is, uh, they believe that it's an affront to the goddess Artemis. And he's telling them that in, in worshiping idols and worshiping a pagan goddess, they were really following the devil. And even though I don't think, maybe some of you have, uh, I have never uh, bowed down to a silver metal you know, object of some goddess and worshipped her. I believe it's true for all of us that if you're not following the Lord, you are enslaved to the devil. There's only two options. You can't have a third option. You are either following the Lord and ruled by him, or you are ruled and following Satan. And that's a frightening truth. It's dark, but we need to know it and we need to believe it. And third, he reminds them that they were enslaved to their own sinful nature. In verse 3, he says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, carrying out the desires of the mind. What's really interesting here is that this enslavement is to ourselves. We're enslaved to our own nature. And it leaves us completely unable to obey God or even to choose God on our own. And it might be said, well, doesn't that do an affront to human free will to say that we couldn't possibly choose God on our own? And I think there's two ways that we should respond to that. First, if, if, if free will means doing what you want to do, then this passage completely affirms that. This passage says that in sin, you do exactly what you want, but exactly what you want is rebellion against God. Exactly what you want is sin. If by free will you mean the ability to either choose God or choose sin on our own, I don't think this passage leaves that door open for us. If you're dead in sin, if you're carrying out the desires of sin within you, if it corrupts you, as this passage tells us, we're completely unable to come to God unless he first works in us. Sometimes there's uh, an image portrayed of God that he's somehow sitting at the doors of heaven and there's all these people coming at the door and begging God, God, let me in. I want to go to heaven. I want to know you. And God maliciously stands there and, and, and picks a few people out of the crowd and says, no, nah, I want you, you, and you, but the rest of you can go away. If this passage is true, then that's not the image at all. The image is of a humanity who is together running away from the Lord, 
a humanity who is dead, and God graciously chooses and pulls and draws people to himself out of their sin. We also have to recognize that people, people might want heaven. In our sin, we might want heaven because we don't want to be punished. We might want heaven because we want some sort of blessing. But in our sin, we don't want God. We follow the desires of our sinful nature, but we don't desire the Lord himself, and that's a really important distinction. If you want heaven without God, you don't want heaven. You don't want salvation if it's apart from Christ. So if we're to remember and understand the story of our salvation, we need to know that left to ourselves, we could do nothing, that we were dead and that we were slaves. But as, as dark as uh, death and slavery can seem, this third point of remembering who we were in sin even seems darker. We were under God's wrath. At the end of verse 3, he tells the Ephesians that they were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, if you think that you're exempted from all of this, hopefully that last piece, like the rest of mankind, clears it all up for you. It's not just the people out there. It's me. It's you. It's every one of us. Apart from God, this is us, like the rest of mankind. It leaves us completely unable to look at anybody on earth and say that I am by nature better than them. It is the great leveling plane of all of mankind. This describes every last person, and that should deeply humble us. It should actually allow us to love other people well and have grace on them as well because I know that I would be no different apart from the grace of God. It is who I am. So speaking of, of unpopular, if talking about sin is unpopular and talking about a real devil is even more unpopular, then talking about God being against us in our sin is even more unpopular. We all want to believe in a loving God, right? I don't want to think about a God who's just. I don't want to think about a God who has wrath against sin. And God is loving. We're going to talk about that. We got, we're going to get there, I promise. But before we get there, we have to see that God is holy, that God is just, that in sin we are apart from him and we are under his wrath. Paul wants us to remember that apart from God, we were dead. Apart from God, we were slaves. Apart from God, we were under his wrath. So how often, how often do you truly spend time remembering who you were apart from Christ? It can be painful. And this part's actually really hard for me. Josh was talking in the children's message about our desire that children who grow up in the church and the blessing of hearing the gospel and God's word from a young age would never know a day apart from the Lord. That's part of my story. Of course, I, I see my sin and I remember growing in faith, but I couldn't tell you the day I became a Christian. And that's a huge blessing. So what do I do? How do I remember who I was apart from the Lord? Am I unable to do that? I don't think so. So even if you were raised in the church, even if you've seen the Lord working in your life from a young age, I want to encourage you to look and see sin's corruption at work in you. I know the temptations of the world. I know the temptations of the devil. I know what it's like to be corrupted by sin. I need to see my sin if I want to truly understand the gospel. I need to. Now, to be clear, I'm not telling us to be completely preoccupied with our sin. 
If, if you're just completely engrossed in, in thinking about all your sin all of the time, that's not healthy. It can be a real danger for us. But there is a reason that we confess our sin every week. The reason, there's a reason we go to God every week together and say, God, we are sinners in need of your grace. Right? We do that so that we can hear God's word rightly. So that we can worship him correctly. So if we want to know the gospel, if we want to see the beauty of the gospel, we have to see the depth of our sin. As I quoted earlier from Thomas Watson, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And that is true, and that is why we need to remember our stories. So with that in mind, let's move on to our second point. We must remember what God has done to save us from our sin. But God, right? We love these words. But God. These two words, they shine the brightest light in the deepest darkness. You were dead, but God. You were a slave, but God. You were under his wrath, but God. But God. And it's the depth of our deadness that we just talked about. It's the depth of our slavery that makes God's grace so rich, so makes it so immeasurable. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul points to three things about God here. He talks about God's mercy, God's richness of his mercy, literally meaning like his wealth of mercy. And it's out of this wealth of mercy that God does not give sinners what they deserve. He talks about God's great love with which he has loved us. And he talks about his grace. In verse 7, he calls it the immeasurable riches of his grace. His super abounding, all-surpassing grace and love and kindness toward us. Often, grace and mercy are defined as, as mercy not receiving what you deserve, and grace receiving something you don't deserve. So grace is often defined as unmerited favor, right? And I think that's a good definition. But if this passage is true, then it's more than unmerited favor. It's more than just something we didn't deserve. God's grace is something that we had actively unearned. We had actively learned exactly the opposite of what God gives us in the gospel. It's demerited grace. It's demerited favor. And that's good news. When all we deserved was God's judgment, God gave salvation. And Paul goes on. Uh, he, the, he talks about how we were saved by grace, and then he talks about how we were saved in Christ. So how does Paul describe the saving action? He does it in a couple ways. He describes the dead being made alive together with Christ. Salvation is is dead men, dead women, dead children being reborn, being regenerated, recreated. Salvation is a story of death all the way to life. But he goes on. It's more than just death to life. He describes it as being raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly, heavenly places. So if, if this being made alive, remember the problems, we're dead in sin, we're enslaved. So if being made alive deals with the problem of death, it's our being raised with Christ and seated with Christ that deals with the problem of slavery. 
In chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verses 20 and 21, when he, he talks about God's power that he worked in Christ, and listen to the parallel here with what we just saw in Ephesians 2, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age which is to come. So in salvation, we're united to the king who sits enthroned above all other powers. We're united to the king that in his resurrection, ascension, and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, rules over the powers of sin, over the power of the world, over the powers of the devil. And in being united to him, we have freedom from that slavery. We get the benefit of being united to the king of the universe by faith. And this is where I have to note what I think is the most beautiful part of this whole passage. Note all the ways that he talks about in Christ and in him in this passage. We're not just saved, we're saved in Christ. This is union with Christ's language. And I want you to think for a second. Look at verses 5 through 7. Could you read verses 5 through 7 the same if you cut out every reference to in Christ Jesus and in him? Seriously, take a look at it. Would it mean the same to you if you cut that out? When I was looking at this passage, I was convicted of that. If you cut it out, it's we were dead, but God made us alive. And he raised us up and he seated us in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And that sounds great. We were dead. We were made alive. We were raised. We were seated. But every time he says one of those things, he follows it with, in Christ Jesus. We were made alive in Christ Jesus. We were raised in him. We were seated with him in the heavenly places. It's in Christ that our salvation becomes good. And think about here how all the things that happen to us in salvation uh, parallel what happened to Christ. We confess in the Apostles' Creed earlier that Christ died, he was buried, that he was raised, that he ascended to heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And look how Paul describes our salvation. We were dead. We were made alive. We were raised. We were seated. And this isn't just talking about the future. He's not saying one day you will be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He said you were. You were seated and you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Salvation is good because our story of death to life is wrapped up in the story of death to life of our Savior. Our salvation is good not just because we get grace. It's not just because we're made alive. I want you to see that the gift is Christ. The goodness of the gospel is that we get him. We get his story. We get his death. We get his resurrection. We get his righteousness. We get his sonship. We get his eternal life. We get Christ and we're selling the gospel short. We're selling it short if we just tell people that they get salvation from sin. We get Christ. We get him. It is so good. But we're not only saved by grace, we're not only saved in Christ, but we're saved by faith. And the question becomes, how did this become ours? How did union with Christ happen? How did I get 
his death in my place? How did I get his resurrection? We get that we are united to Christ by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. The only way to be saved is to embrace Christ in faith. Whereas the shorter catechism says, we have to quote that every once in a while because we're Presbyterians, but the shorter catechism I think gives such a good definition of faith. We receive and we rest on Christ alone for our salvation. We receive him. We receive the benefits of the gospel and we rest on them. We don't rest on anything that I have done. Josh told us when when we're convicted of our sin, we don't look inward for hope. We look outside of ourselves. We look up. We rest in what has been done for us in the gospel. We receive and rest on him alone, which is why it can't be by works. If we're resting in us being good, which obviously isn't true because of verses 1 through 3 anyway. But if you want to try to rest in being good, it won't work. We must rest in Jesus alone. We try to contribute things, right? I try to contribute things. I think that I'll come in on Sunday morning and worship God and that it'll be somehow more acceptable and God will love me more. I'll be more his son. I'll be more a recipient of the gospel if I just was nicer to Lexi the day before, or if I, you know, can be diligent in doing my work that week, or if I help somebody out or give somebody some money. We can't contribute anything. You cannot give a penny into the bank account of your salvation. It has been all paid by Christ. It has been done by him. And we must remember that. When we try to contribute, it's, it's a result of forgetting we forget the gospel. We forget what has already been done for us. What's really cool and really incredible here is that Paul, he talks about our faith, and he makes it clear that our faith itself is not something that we do. Yes, I believe. When I heard the gospel, when Josh heard the gospel when he was in college, he responded. He believed. He had faith in Christ. But even that faith is a gift from God. Even it is not your own doing. When this passage says, this is not your own doing, Paul's not just saying the grace isn't your own doing. Paul's making it clear that even faith is not your own doing. You have done none of this. If what this passage says is true about our sin, then we're dead. We're not just sick. We can't just choose to understand the gospel. We can't just believe in God unless he does a supernatural act in our heart, unless by his spirit he makes us new. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new eyes. He enables us to see Christ for who he is and all his beauty and everything he has given to us. And we respond in faith as a gift from God. Salvation must be a sovereign act of God. And if you've been at Livingstone a long time, you might remember one of our first services where Dan, uh, Daniel and Josh uh, did a little rap for us. So in case... Uh, you think we're strange? Now you really know we're strange. And our pastor raps in front of the congregation every once in a while. But we, we all love this rapper named Shylin, and he has this analogy that fits this so perfect. Describes exactly what Paul's talking about. He says this, and I'm not going to rap it. If, I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. So I'll read it, and you can catch the rhyme scheme later. Some people say we were drowning in the ocean. Barely floating until God threw us the rope then. Our free will, 
helped us as we groped. Our, our faith is the hand that grabbed the rope and God pulled us back in the boat. Nope. Without apology, I deny that analogy. Reality, we were dead at the bottom of the sea. I was a swollen corpse with hope no more until Jehovah the Lord dove from the shore to the ocean floor. Yeah, I was a corpse and I felt like it. And I smelt like it. I'll keep it simple. Why did God choose me? Because he felt like it. If you are a Christian, if you have been brought from death to life in Christ, then praise the Lord. Our salvation inspires grateful worship in our hearts. And it leaves us with zero ability to boast. It leaves us for zero room for pride. You have no room to boast if it is God who made you alive. If it is him who worked faith in you to embrace Christ, to receive what Christ did for you that you could have never done for yourself in salvation. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then know that there is only one. There is only one way to be saved from our sin. There's only one way for this to be true. And that's faith. To trust in Christ alone. Education isn't going to solve your problem. Being true to yourself isn't going to solve your problem. Your preferred political party isn't going to solve your problem, nor will having more money, doing good deeds for others, bettering yourself, whatever that means, or anything else you try. Your only hope is found in Christ and Him alone. And I plead with you, if you have not, to put your trust in Him. So we must remember, remember I said three things. We must remember who we were in sin. We must remember what God has done to save us from our sin by grace in Christ through faith. And lastly, I want us to remember, and Paul wants us to remember, God's purposes in our salvation. He gives us two, two reasons that God has saved us. First, that he might display his glorious grace. Verse 7 says that God has saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, God has saved you to show off his grace. You don't exist for yourself. You exist for him. Even your salvation isn't ultimately about you. Your salvation is about God. And God desires now and for the rest of eternity for you to be a display of his glorious grace as you display it and you declare it to the world. So we're a picture of what God has done and what God is doing to save sinners, to draw them to himself, himself in Christ. And is that the way that you view your purpose in life? Is that what you live for? I was on staff with InterVarsity with a college ministry for four years. So I know how much college students, at least, are looking for their purpose in life. Some as they switch their major six or seven times, right? You're looking for what is that thing that I'm supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with my life? What's going to be fulfilling for me? Even us as Christians, we, we try to discern our gifts, and that's a good thing, right? How has God specifically gifted me so that I can be a benefit to the body of Christ? That's great, But I want you to know that we already have the answer to your purpose in life. Why do you exist? You exist for God's glory. 
you don't exist for yourself. In every other facet of your life, whether your job, your major right now, your, your parenthood, all of those things are wrapped up in that greater purpose to be a display of God's glory and God's goodness. What are you living for? And the last reason that God has saved us is so that we would walk in good works. And we need to not get this confused. We're not saved by good works, right? We've already covered that. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Good works, good things that we do in obedience to God are not in opposition to the gospel. They're just the fruit of the gospel and not the cause of the gospel. The fruit of God's work of salvation, not the thing that causes us. Verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I want you to notice that word walk. It's great. If you look at verse 2, your passage, you'll notice that this whole passage is really bookended by the idea of walking. In verse 2, he says uh, that you walked in trespasses and sins. And now we are saved that we would walk in good works. So this salvation, this being made alive in Christ is the foundation for all of the commands that Paul gives through the rest of his book of, of the book of Ephesians. I want you to look at this. There's, Ephesians is a great case study of how Paul switches from indicatives to imperatives. He switches, the first half of the book is so clearly uh, what's true about God. That's in, indicatives. What is true about God and what God has done. The second half is imperatives. How do we live in light of what God has done? And look how he describes the imperatives. I'll just read a couple of these. You don't have to flip to them. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 17 in that chapter. Now, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 5.8, walk as children of the light. 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It's our death to life in Christ. It is that story that enables and informs our walk of obedience. Today, there's this big slogan that's going around. If, I don't know who is watching the Packer game. I try not to talk about sports too much, but the Bears, it's always good to have the Bears coach be the bad guy, right? The Bears coach on his little play chart, it said, be yourself on the back of it. And Josh and I were commenting on that as we were watching the, the Packer game. There's this big thing, just be yourself. And that is core to being true and a good human. Just be who you are. If what Ephesians 2 tells us is true, then being yourself is probably the worst thing that you can do. Seriously. If you are dead, if you are a slave, if you are under God's wrath, then why would you just like, yeah, I just need to be more of that. I just need to be more a child of wrath, right? That's not how that works. But, but if, if the second half of this passage is true, if we've been made alive with Christ, if we're identified with him and our identity is rooted in who he is and what he has done, then I think that this statement is really helpful. Just be who you are. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are his. Now act like it. Walk in it. Be who you are. And that's where he 
leaves us in this passage, that we're supposed to act in line with our identity when our whole identity is found in Jesus alone. And in the end, that's why it's so important that we remember. We have to remember who we were in sin. We have to remember what God has done to save us from sin. We have to remember why he saved us from sin. And we often forget that. I often forget the gospel story every day. We have to remember that remembrance itself is an active thing. I'm calling you to actually do something. Remember. Lexi remembers her childhood because she watches home videos. Because she talks about her childhood stories with her family all the time. Because she loves looking at old photos. Because she has journals from like 10 years of her life that she can reread. I forget my story not because I don't have the means to remember. I have the photo book. I have my family. I have the stories. I just don't go there. I don't use the means that God has given me to remember. And God has given us means as Christians to remember, hasn't he? And we need to make good use of those means. Read God's word. We're reminded there of God's mighty acts and what he's done in Christ. Go to God in prayer by yourself. Go to God in prayer with others. We'll go to God in prayer together often as a church when we come to worship. Come to church. Come confess your sins. Hear of God's grace in Christ. Worship God for it. Josh reminded us a couple weeks ago to preach the gospel to yourself when we were in Psalm 103. So do that. Wake up in the morning and remind yourself of the gospel. But preach the gospel also to one another. When you see each other through the week, remind each other of the gospel. Preach it to each other. We need to remember. Talk about the gospel with your family. Talk about it with your kids, just like you would memories of a family vacation. Come to church and take the Lord's Supper. Do the things that God has given us to remember and be taught the story of the gospel. Make use of all of it. And, re- and in remembering, walk. Walk for the display of God's glory. And when you remember, walk. Walk in obedience to God and walk in light of who he is and all that he has done for you in the gospel. To take you who were dead, to make you alive in Christ and give you salvation by grace in Christ and through faith. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your great grace in saving sinners, in breathing new life into those who were dead. Father, help us to remember. We so easily forget. Help us to remember the gospel. Keep us from forgetting. And enable us by your Holy Spirit to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. For your glory, we pray. Amen.